The personal computer revolution changed all of our lives. In this episode, we're going to cover its origins from 1975 to 1980. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible. So today we're going to take a little walk through history and we're going to explore the personal computer revolution, really focusing on the years 1975 to 1980. But before we even do that, what are we what was it like before we had our own personal computers? What were computers actually like at the in the early 70s? Who was using them and who had who had access to that? Yeah, so modern digital computers were invented during World War II, and for the first few decades, until the mid-70s, they were only accessible to large corporations, governments, and universities for the most part. Why? Two reasons, really. They were extremely expensive. We're talking hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars for certain state-of-the-art, what were called mainframes at the time. And they were very large and consumed a lot of electricity. So uh, mainframes in the 50s and 60s could be as large as a whole building or as large as a room. Um, and then we got what were called mini computers, which weren't even that many. They were the size of basically your refrigerator, uh, some of the smaller ones. So these computers were very expensive, very large. They were not within the reach of, let's say, a consumer or a small business. And so the personal computer revolution was all about bringing computers to your average person. Computers that were um, accessible in the sense that they were easy enough to use, but also inexpensive enough in the sense that they were in the order of thousands of dollars or even less instead of tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. And so the personal computer revolution was really exciting because it was bringing this power to regular people. Before the personal computer revolution, these incredible machines that really extend human abilities, computers, right? Uh, with their incredible calculating abilities and organizational abilities, were limited to a select few people, people who worked at a large corporation or for government or at a university. But the personal computer revolution brought this power to everybody. And we know that information is power and communication is power, which personal computers would eventually enable as well. So the personal computer revolution was about democratizing this incredible technology and bringing this power to every individual uh, to the point where we are today, where basically everybody on earth owns a cell phone. It's pretty cool to imagine what it was like when this was first taking off, when people were first being able to have their own personal computers. What was the enabling technology that let computers go from big rooms to on our desktops? So the real enabling technology was the microprocessor. So the microprocessor, which was invented in the early 1970s and really developed by companies like Texas Instruments and Intel, was the combination of what had previously been multiple chips into one chip. And the microprocessor and the specific type of microprocessor we're talking about, which is usually called the CPU or the central processing unit, is basically the brain of your computer. And it does most of the calculation. It does most of the actual um, processing for any given program that you run. When it was multiple chips, it was more expensive. And through improved manufacturing technology, being able to integrate it all into one chip brought down its price and allowed for mass production. 
And so when once we got the microprocessor in its almost modern form, that enabled us to make smaller, less expensive computers and therefore enabled the first personal computers co- computer companies to spring up and cause this revolution. So the, one of the first of these computers was the Altair 8800. How did that one come to be and what was so special and exciting about it? So there had been what we would call like desktop computers before the Altair 8800. And by that, I mean a computer that's small enough to sit on your desk and that is um, possible to be used with something sort of like a keyboard, maybe a teletype. But they were very expensive and they were not yet mass produced to the point where your regular hobbyist or even small business was purchasing them. So I don't want to say that the Altair 8800 was the absolute first desktop computer, but it was certainly the first one that was widely produced that had a big impact on causing the personal computer revolution. And so it was produced by a small company called MITS out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, of all places. And they built the machine around the microprocessor known as the Intel 8080, which was a revolutionary microprocessor for how integrated it was and how inexpensive it was at the time. This is all happening in 1975. And one of the other really special things about the Altair 8800 is that it led to the creation of Microsoft, which would become, of course, one of the most important companies in personal computers and eventually in all of computers. So I just want to tell quickly the story of how Microsoft got started. There were a lot of people waiting for this revolution that were excited about it, kind of hobbyists and people who knew a little bit about computers. And two of those people were Paul Allen and Bill Gates, who had already been friends for years. They grew up in Seattle together. They got went to high school together. They'd already done some entrepreneurial ventures around computers together. But then what happened is in 1975, they found themselves both in Boston. Bill Gates was going to Harvard and Paul Allen was working at Honeywell. And they were eagerly anticipating this revolution. And when the Byte magazine came out with with the Altair 8800 on the cover, and they picked up a copy in Harvard Square, they knew this was their chance. And so they called up MITS because MITS was missing something very important. They had this really cool machine, uh, the first mass-produced personal computer. It kind of came in a kit form, but it didn't have software. And so the idea was that Bill Gates and Paul Allen would create the first basic interpreter for the Altair 8800. And, you know, basic was this programming language that was really ubiquitous at the time. It was used by most people who were first learning programming, but even people who were writing fairly simple programs were were using basic as their standard. So many different of these mini computers and mainframes had basic interpreters on them. But the idea was if we could bring BASIC to the personal computer revolution, then it would really make the computers a lot more accessible. And so there were other people with the same idea. They all were calling MITS and said, hey, we're going to create a BASIC interpreter for you. And MITS said, hey, Paul Allen, Bill Gates, fly out here and prove to us that you actually can create it. And they didn't even have an Altair. They didn't have access to one. So what did they do? They simulated that microprocessor, the Intel 8080, at one of the mainframe computers that they had access to at the university, they got this. So that's a hard feat in of itself, building an interpreter for another microprocessor. Then on top of that interpreter, they built a basic interpreter running in in the microprocessor interpreter. So they didn't actually have access to a real machine, a real Altair, and they didn't know if it was really going to work. And then it gets even more interesting. Paul Allen gets on the plane 
to go out to Albuquerque. And he realizes, you know what? They forgot to produce what's called the bootloader, which is the piece of software that actually loads the interpreter onto the machine. So he actually writes it by hand without access to a computer on the plane. When he gets there to MITS, he doesn't know if it's going to work. He doesn't know if their interpreter is going to work. He never run the basic interpreter on an actual machine. And then when he saw it print out two plus two, he knew they were in business when he saw that that result was four. And the MITS people were pretty excited too, because they knew this was going to make their machines a lot more accessible. So actually Microsoft then started as a partnership between Bill Gates and Paul Allen out in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And Bill Gates dropped out of Harvard and the rest is history. But what they did for the first five years was mainly produce language software. So basic interpreters for other machines, including for companies like Apple that we'll get into. And they also produced other kinds of programming languages and programming language software that made these first personal computers usable by more people. So when we talk about the Altair 8800, or uh, I guess even some of the other computers or machines that we'll be talking about, it wasn't like how we might imagine using a computer today. These were not the same machines as our laptops that we're booting up and using every day for work. No, they were very primitive. So they had, we talked in episode two of our podcast about operating systems. If these machines had operating systems at all, which some of them didn't, they were very, very simplistic operating systems. And they would typically, what we would recognize is they typically had a keyboard, just like we have a keyboard today. And they typically would be about the size of like a desktop computer today sitting on your desk. And they would typically have a monitor, although some of them would connect to a television. And so you'd actually hook up your, your desktop computer to some small television, or you could hook it up to a big television too. And they would have very limited capabilities compared to what we're used to today. But even though they were so confined, and we're talking about microprocessors that ran at one or two megahertz typically, and a lot of these machines in the mid-70s would have eight kilobytes of RAM. Uh, and, and just for orders of magnitude, we're talking several lower orders of magnitude than machines today. So they would be very limited in what their capabilities were. A lot, some of these first computers d- couldn't even do graphical output. Um, they, they were really, really simplistic by our standards today, but they were enabling people to have powers that they never had before, even though these computers were so simple. They were enabling uh, your average small business to do its own accounting instead of having to ship this off to an accountant. They were enabling people to keep records of important things to them, whether that was a scientist cataloging his experiments or her experiments, or it was a um, person who's a homemaker cataloging their recipes. Doing these sort of things, uh, having large databases of records, having um, the calculation abilities, being able to do um, even just play games didn't exist before the personal computer revolution. So it was an enabling technology of all kinds of new activities for regular people through, built through the, the power of these tools. So we have the Altair 8800 that directly leads to Microsoft. And then there are some other computers that come on the scene. Um, one from Atari. Yeah. So Atari was known for the Pong video game, which was a huge hit in the early 1970s. And then they came out with a home version of it. And that came out in 1974. And it wasn't quite a full computer, general purpose computer, because it didn't have a microprocessor in it. It was built out of discrete logic chips. But a few years later in 1977, as this revolution is getting underway, they came out with the Atari 2600, which there were other video game consoles, but it was really the the one that 
that made the biggest impact and really led to what was the video game revolution and the home video game revolution. And so the Atari 2600 actually had a general purpose microprocessor in it known as the Moz Technology 6502. And this was the same microprocessor that was in a lot of other early computers. And so that video game system, we can think about the Atari 2600 as one of the early computers. But another company that was using that same microprocessor was Apple. And Apple got started out of what was known as the Homebrew Computer Club. So the Homebrew, there were all these clubs popping up as these first computers were coming out, like the Altair 8800. And these first microprocessors were cheap enough that regular people could buy them and even build their own computers. And one of the clubs was in Silicon Valley called the Homebrew Computer Club. And two of its attendees were Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. And interestingly, Steve Jobs had actually worked at Atari as kind of a electronics solderer um, a couple couple years before. And he and uh, Steve Wozniak had even done a project for Atari, building one of the first versions of Breakout. But that's probably a story for another time. But, they, but Steve Wozniak created the Apple One, which was a general purpose computer built around the Moz Technology 6502. And the reason he chose the chip, and probably the reason Atari chose it too, and a lot of other computer manufacturers, is it was just really cheap. It was a twenty, like a twenty-five dollar chip when the Intel eight hundred eight hundred cost hundreds of dollars, and so a lot of early personal computers ended up getting designed around this chip, the six five zero two. Anyway, uh, so they created this Apple One, and the Apple One was more of an integrated package than the Altair eighty eight hundred. So it came already w- as a board that was ready to be plugged into a keyboard and a television screen. And so it came less like a kit and more like something you were ready to use. But when the, it really got exciting was when they came out with the Apple II in 1977. So that's the same year as the uh, Atari 2600 comes out. Again, built around that 6502 chip. But it was a fully integrated system, what was so special about the Apple II. It came with the keyboard already built in. You didn't have to hook it up. It came already in a beautiful plastic case. It came um, already ready with uh, peripherals available for it. It came in a totally integrated system with some software already loaded on it, including a basic interpreter, so that a regular person could actually just plug it in and start to use it right away. So that was really the start of what we would start to see computers that look similar to the packages that we buy today at a store. And there were two other important computers that came out that year in 1977. There was the TRS-80, which was based around another inexpensive microprocessor called the Z80, which was actually a clone of the Intel 8080, but a lot cheaper. And it was built by a company called Zilog. And that computer, the TRS-80, named after that Z80 chip, was actually built by Tandy, which was a company that used to own Radio Shack. Um, And Radio Shack just started going out of business the last few years. But believe it or not, Radio Shack, which used to just have like electronic stores in most cities in the United States, has actually a really important role in the early personal computer revolution as one of the main manufacturers of one of the first personal computer brands the TRS-80 line. And then there's one more really important one, which is the Commodore PET. And the Commodore PET, most people are not as familiar with as the Commodore 64 that came out a few years later. But the 64 was really just an evolution of the PET and the VIC-20 that came after it. So these three computers, the Apple II, the Commodore PET, and the TRS-80, 
were really the trifecta that took the personal computer revolution from being something amongst hobbyists and early adopters to being something that regular people could really uh, get access to because they were mass produced. They came already integrated into a package that you could just plug in and they came with some, some basic software already, mainly basic interpreters installed on them so that you could right away go and write a program in a pretty simple language. So this was when things really got exciting. So those are some of the, you know, the important hardware and important computers during this time period. And then there's also some important and interesting software that comes on the scene. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about CPM? Yeah. So the thing that with these early personal computers is that they really didn't have much of an operating system. So they would have um, maybe a basic interpreter built in and some basic, what we would today call a BIOS, doing some some really simple maintenance of memory as programs are running and, and handle some interrupts from hardware devices. But they, they were really pretty bare metal. So we didn't really have what we would think of as today as an operating system running on these machines. One of the, the pioneers in this space, the big pioneer, was digital research founded by Gary Kildall. And he created an operating system called CPM. And CPM was similar to what a lot of people are familiar with, which is DOS, which came out several years later and was basically a clone of it. But he was coming out with CPM in the mid-1970s and then selling it for some of these early personal computers. And it became something of a standard. It became something of the first personal computer operating system standard. And CPM was actually something, again, that... um, that regular people could use. So it wasn't so obtuse and so complicated. The commands were pretty simple. It was pretty easy to understand what was going on compared to some of the operating systems for more sophisticated computers before the personal computer revolution. So CPM in and of itself was really a revolution. And it was part of kind of the software side of this personal computer revolution. An important piece of software that also came on the scene that time is VisiCalc. What was that? So VisiCalc was the first spreadsheet application, and it was created by a fellow named Dan Bricklin. I think he was out in Massachusetts. And VisiCalc was the first time that people could really do accounting on a personal computer in the way that they used to do on paper ledgers. VisiCalc in and of itself sold a lot of personal computers because it was so powerful for small businesses. So VisiCalc originally came out for the Apple II, I think it was in 1978, and that on its own led to the sale of a lot of Apple IIs. And VisiCalc later on got ported to several other uh, personal computers of the time and became kind of a standard. It would get displaced several years later by other spreadsheet packages like Lotus 123, and then years after that by Microsoft Excel. But it was really the first what we call killer app. And what a killer app is, is it's an app that is so important, enables such new capabilities for people that it on its own is a selling point for a platform. So when VisiCalc came out, it on its own was the reason that people bought Apple IIs, a lot of people. And when, um, just to give you a parallel today, so we might say that the World Wide Web and the web browser in particular was the killer app selling personal computers in the late 1990s, that people were buying personal computers just to get access to web browser software in the late 1990s. So VisiCalc was the equivalent of that in the late 1970s. 
And we're kind of getting towards the end of our first part of this personal computer revolution. Um, Kind of the capstone to it is the IBM computer. Yeah, the IBM PC. So IBM had already been the largest company in computers since the 1950s. But they hadn't had a strong part of this personal computer revolution. They were still building mainframe computers, computers for large corporations and governments and universities. They weren't producing very many. They had some, but they weren't producing very many desktop-like computers. And they certainly weren't producing ones that were affordable for a um, regular person or small business. This all changes when they come out with the IBM PC. And the IBM PC is really um, the catalyst for this revolution taking off even more. And it comes out in 1981. That's really the start of what I think about as another era in personal computing. So there's kind of the personal computer revolution that gets started in 1975 to 1980. And that's like the early days before there's a lot of standards, although there had been some. For example, there was something called the S100 bus that was based on the Altair and led to a lot of Altair clones. And a lot of those Altair clones would run CPM, that operating system from digital research. But then there was also just a lot of incompatible computers like the Apple II or the TRS-80 or the Commodore PET. While they would have basic interpreters, all of them, the same basic program or the same, certainly the same assembly program would not run the same way on each of those machines. So IBM wanted to not just come into personal computers, but they wanted to come into them in a big way and they wanted to establish the standard. And so that's really what they were able to do when the IBM PC came out in 1981. So it really started a whole different era in the development of personal computers and led to a totally different landscape. I think we'll have to save that for another episode because it's really a different era with different players, different companies, different computers involved. But I think what I want our listeners to take away from the era of 1975 to 1980 is that it was a highly competitive time. There were a lot of startup companies all competing for mindshare, all competing for consumer dollars. But it was also really a time of great empowerment for regular people in a way that I think we can't really understand today for people like me. I I was born in 87, so I came after this. I think for us, the big personal computing revolution has been the smartphone right? that came out about 13 years ago with the iPhone. I mean, there were smartphones before that, but when it really started to change our most people's everyday lives, I think that you can't really draw a perfect parallel between the two because what the smartphone has enabled us to do is most of the things that we could already do on our personal computers just in a more mobile way and even more accessible way with multi-touch interfaces. But the personal computer, before it existed in any form, people just didn't have those powers. They, they just didn't exist. They, they were things that were locked away to only the elite few who worked at these large corporations or the government or at universities. And so personal computer was a great democratizing and great enabling force that really I've always been really excited about and in awe of. And I hope I've expressed a little bit of that to our listeners. I think you have. I think I'll get a, a sense of really how this changed our everyday lives. And it's the start of where we are now in the way that we interact with software and with computers. Um, It's so much a part of our lives in a way that it wasn't before this personal computer revolution. All right. Well, it's been great talking about the early personal computer revolution, and we look forward to seeing everybody again next week. Rebecca, how can people get in touch with us on Twitter? 
So our handle is at Kopec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S. And I also want to remind everybody to leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts or Overcast. It really helps our show get seen by more people. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.